we praise God for what he does, but we worship him for who he is. now for one last thing welcome to brothers of the word because brother you need the word i am so thankful i'm so humbled i'm so honored to be here uh, i honor your pastors in their absence uh love them dearly as my own brothers i've known them for decades and it is just Amazing to see how God continues to work, and I take none of it for granted. I'm excited for the chance that we get to assemble together as the saints this evening. I'm grateful that we have people tuning in online who are hungry for God's word. And so I say, let's get after it. If there's nothing else you know about me, you should know that I'm a man who loves the Lord, my God, with all my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. And I'm hungry to continue to grow to be more like him. Been walking with him for 22 years now. And it seems like every single day, as my sister said, every single day gets sweeter. There's something about the Lord that he can satisfy our souls like nobody else. And so I believe that as we break open the bread of life tonight, that he will meet each and every one of us right where we are with the situations and the circumstances that we're dealing with from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. So I'm excited. I invite you to just go ahead and take your seats as we begin to dive into his word. I hadn't come up with a sermon title in a long, long, long time. And as I was preparing, as Pastor C. Elijah and I were talking about tonight, I believe the Lord just wants us to gather around his word and understand this thought of one last thing. One last thing. If I was amongst friends and family, which I am, I would probably say one more thing. And that's M-O apostrophe. One more thing, you know, because if we all really think about it, it's sometimes the last final instructions that are kind of the most important ones. Now, most of you all know that I have an amazing wife. I got three tremendous sons, ages 15, 13, and 12. And we're at a season in life where, you know, the final instructions tend to be the most important ones. Things like, son, make sure you lock the door behind you. You know, tons of times I come home and my back door is unlocked and I'm looking for the television to be gone and other stuff to be missing. And they just say, oops, daddy, my bad. I forgot. So I have to say a lot. Lock the door behind you. Sometimes the final instruction might be make sure you turn the alarm on. Turn the alarm on. Sometimes we got a new family member two months ago, a cute little Cavapoo puppy named Jet. And the new instruction is make sure you put the dog in a cage before you leave. I don't want the dog tearing up the house while we're gone, okay? But it's final instructions. I got, you know, an uh, early middle schooler who sometimes I got to say, did you brush your teeth today? Did you put on deodorant today? Because you got to give final instructions. I had one not too long ago uh, where I came home and I drove in my garage. And immediately as I opened the door of my car, I smelled gas. I said, it's not great. And I walk in and my kids seem unfazed. And I say, does nobody smell the gas in this house? And I go over to the stove and I notice that they had leaned up against it. And I guess playing around, it kind of rubbed the knob on. And so it's gas just floating through the house. So now we got to say, let's make sure the stove and the oven is off. All right. But it's final instructions. And a lot of times the final instructions are the most important ones. And because I believe in my kids, because I believe in young people, because I believe in people in general, sometimes you have to encourage them, you know, before they go out for the day, you might have to say, hey, do your best. You might have to look at them and say, hey, don't forget, God loves you. Daddy loves you. Go out and take on the world. Sometimes you got to instruct them to say, treat others with kindness and respect. That's the expectation. 
When you leave this house, I want you to treat other people with kindness and respect. That's the final instruction. Two of my other favorite ones I like to tell my kids every morning. Make sure you love others well and you lead by example. I don't care what you do today. Daddy is not as concerned about your grades as he is about your character. So I want to make sure if you do nothing else, you make sure that you love other people well. And you make sure that you lead by example. Don't be a follower. And the final one is to make Jesus famous. People are so hungry to try to make a name for themselves. And, but I have to remind my kids that our ultimate goal is to make Jesus famous. Some of y'all might be saying, preacher, what does this have to do with anything? I'm getting there. Tonight, as I think about the life and the ministry of Jesus, the fact that he walked here on earth, that he experienced a lot of the same things that we experienced, and he left us instructions. And sometimes you got to think about the fact, yeah, if somebody's about to go or if you can sense that your time might be limited, you might be wanting to give some final instructions. So I was thinking about the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Most famous sermon ever preached, ever will be preached. There are a lot of great preachers in this world, but nothing touches the Sermon on the Mount. As he's wrapping this thing up, begins in Mark 5, Mark 6, Mark 7, he ends it with something foundational for us. And I do mean that literally. He leaves us with something foundational for us to build our life upon. Now, understand, he's already taken the time throughout the sermon to teach us the importance of prayer and how to pray. He teaches us the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us the power of what it means, what it looks like to be generous. He teaches us how to leverage our influence to point others to Christ by being salt and by being light. He tells us how to have proper relationships with other people. He tells us how to do hard things. The walk of a believer is not necessarily intended to be easy. He says, in this life, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be fooled. He tells us to do hard things. What kind of hard things does he tell us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? He tells us to love our enemies. He tells us to pray for those who hate us. He tells us to look after those and care for those who despitefully use us. He tells us to do hard things. He tells us about the power of persistence. He tells us how to ask, how to seek, and how to not just get discouraged at the first sign of no. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to ask again. I'm going to seek again, and I'm going to knock again. He teaches us all of these tremendous things, and then he approaches the end in chapter 7, and he talks about the golden rule. Anybody know the golden rule? What's the golden rule? Somebody tell me. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Many parents growing up, Christian or not, believe in this philosophy of what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. It's a great way to live. It's a good way to feel honoring and respectful towards other people. But how many of y'all know that gold is not the top of the line? What's beyond gold? Platinum. The golden rule is fine. Yes, Jesus taught us do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. But platinum goes a little bit further. And platinum says treat other people the way that they want to be treated. So the golden rule says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Platinum rule says forget whatever it is that you feel like. Treat other people the way that they want to be treated. And at our core, I don't care if you black, white, young, old, green, purple, live in the suburbs or the city, in the country or wherever, everybody at our core, we desire to be valued. We desire to have a place to belong. We want to be seen. We want our lives to make an impact. We want to be treated the ways that we desire to be treated. I'll be honest with you, as a husband, I'm still learning this. Because my wife and I, we receive and we comprehend and we extend love in very different ways. 
And so we can't make that mistake to say, well, I mean, I did such and such. Why don't she understand? No. Great example. I'm an avid baseball fan. If you know anything about me over my life, I love baseball. I spent the majority of my life a mile down the road at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. My grandfather helped run it for years. I played for 15 years. I got kids who played now. I love baseball. I can watch it. I sit in the park. It doesn't matter. I love baseball. Now, my wife, she enjoys baseball. But she doesn't love baseball like I love baseball. We have a little joke, like little foods that she'll like. I'd be like, I don't like tacos like you like tacos. And she'd be like, well, I don't like, you know, Thai food like you like Thai food. But we're learning to be able to treat one another with the respect that each other deserves. Platinum rule, treat other people the way that they want to be treated. So as Jesus is landing the plane in Mark 7, he ultimately says, hey, as I wrap this thing up, I just got one final thing that I want to make sure that you understand that you'll never forget. So let's turn to Matthew 7 together. Matthew 7. We're going to read the last five verses of that chapter. And it begins in verse 24, and it says, Everyone, everybody say everyone. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Somebody say wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Somebody say foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell. Floods came, winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Verse 28 says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. One last thing, one more thing. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for just this moment. God, forgive us if we have gone about our day and not acknowledged you. May we never take for granted your grace upon our lives. May we never take for granted your hand that leads us. May we never take for granted your hand that provides for us. May we never take for granted the power of your word that directs us. I thank you that it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway. I thank you that it's the great God. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher, God, and lead us into your truth on tonight. Thank you for these moments that we have to gather together around your words, your truth. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to comprehend. Give us the ability to push aside anything that may distract us from hearing what thus saith the Lord. God, we're grateful for this time tonight. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone in agreement said... Amen. Amen. So as we jump into this last little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to just say one thing about how it ends. Because, you know, Jesus was revolutionary. Jesus came to uproot and upend what was the status quo. And so we see at the very end, the audience is amazed, blown away because of Jesus's teaching. Now notice, it says that they were impressed because he spoke as one who had what? Authority. Now, here's a huge difference. They weren't necessarily enamored with Jesus's speaking ability. He was eloquent. He covered a lot of ground. He was convicting. He was all these things, but they weren't really fully impressed with his, how polished he was. It wasn't about his ability. They were impressed by his spiritual authority. They said, we've never seen anything like it before. They were blown away because he had authority. That Greek word there is exousia. Somebody say exousia which means with mastery, with power, being in control, mastery, power, in control. This is what Jesus was doing as he taught. He taught as one with what I like to call Godfidence, not confidence, but Godfidence, confidence in God. He taught as one with authority. 
And so as he's finishing this sermon, he begins to spell out the importance of the difference between wisdom and foolishness. He talks about the importance of how sturdy something needs to be, what is worth building your life upon. And he draws our attention and says, if you don't remember anything else, my son, my daughter, remember this. You can do a lot of stuff, but if it's the wrong motivation, if it's the wrong heart behind it, if it's built with inferior materials, it's bound to crumble. It's bound to crumble. Be careful how you build. We have to be careful how we build. One of my favorite books in all of scripture is Nehemiah. And this beautiful account is this beautiful story that Nehemiah was one who was motivated to do something. When other people turned a blind eye or they were indifferent or they were apathetic, Nehemiah said, I am constrained. I'm compelled. I have to do something. So we know the story. The walls have been laying in ruins for years upon years upon years. Nehemiah hears about it. And the first thing he does, he doesn't pick up the phone to text nobody. He is heartbroken and he falls on his face before the God of heaven. And he pours out his heart and says, God. My heart is broken because the place I love, people I love are in derision. They're broken down. They're busted up. They're in a bad fix, God. And I've got to do something. I'm compelled. I'm not putting it off on anybody else. So Nehemiah goes through the proper channels and he submits himself to authority. He gets the necessary resources. He goes about and he organizes and he steps into leadership roles that I don't know if he knew that he had, but he was able to say, hey, my brother, I need you to do what you can do. Sister, can you help me out? Lean on your experience. Lean on your network, your resources. My man, hey, can you gather your people? And all I'm asking you to do is just take one step out right in front of where you are with what you have and work to repair your part. Build your part. Fix your part. That's where Nehemiah starts. And if you know the story, he gathers the people. He gets them together. It doesn't take very long. 52 days, seven and a half weeks. It takes him to rebuild the walls that have been broken down years because people had a mind to work and they had a vision. And so as Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, there are just two big ideas that I want us to leave with tonight. Everybody say two. Two big ideas that I want us to leave with. The first idea is that there's a huge difference between hearing and doing. There's a huge difference between hearing and doing. He tells us that the wise person hears it and does it, but the foolish person does what? Hears it and don't do nothing, right? Simple. There's a huge difference between hearing and doing. If I have to yell for somebody to take out the trash in my house and the trash doesn't get moving, what do I have to say? Did you hear me? Did somebody hear me? The sign of you hearing me is you moving into action and completing the task. So Jesus says, he who hears will in turn do. How does this play out in our lives? What does this look like in real life for us? All right. It's going to get a little tight here in a minute, but it's okay. When you hear something, it might provoke something in you and motivate you to say, hmm, man, that's interesting. I'm passionate about that. You know what? Somebody ought to do something about that. We kind of fall back doing whatever we're doing instead of hearing something that strokes the fire that God places on the inside of us and say, you know what? I might not have much, but with what I have, I'm going to do what I can do to make an impact in whatever that area is. But oftentimes the truth of the matter is that when it comes time to figure stuff out and we're looking at what somebody else is doing, we're judging them based on their actions what they're doing or what they're not doing. We judge other people based on their actions. But when the time comes for us to be judged, we want to say, hey, don't look at my track. Don't look at what I did or didn't do. Look at my heart. Bless my heart. I had the right intentions. I had the purest motives, but it's super tempting to look at somebody else outwardly and judge based on action. But for us, we want to be judged based on our intentions. We want to say, yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I was going to do something about it. 
but I chose not to. There's a huge difference between hearing and doing. The author James clearly tells us, James 1.22, we all know it. He calls us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's nothing wrong with them being separate necessarily, but there's tremendous power when we hear and when we act. Jesus says you have to hear correctly. It's like if I was up here giving a test and you can answer with the most detailed, on-point answer that you can think of, but if you're giving the right answer to the wrong question, you're off base. So we have to make sure that we hear well. It's not enough just to hear. We have to be moved to do something. And so many of us, I know it's so easy and it's so tempting to go about our normal rhythms and our normal routines and hear things and say, oh man, one day I'm going to do such and such, or one day such and such, or, you know, somebody ought to do something. And how do we know that we are not the people that God is calling to do it? He says, if you want to be that person, you're not only going to hear what you're going to do. You're going to be moved into action. You're going to be provoked. You're not going to be settled. So he tells us there's a huge connection between hearing and doing. Second idea I want to leave us with tonight. What would it look like? What would it honestly look like if we took Jesus at his word and made a choice to build our lives on the rock? Sometimes it might be convenient to build on the sand. Might be easier, might take less struggle, might have to ruffle fewer feathers, might not lose as many friends or money or any of that, choosing to build on the sand. But what would it look like if we genuinely took God at his word and built our lives on the rock? When the rains come and the winds blow, when the storms hit, we might feel it. But he promised that we won't be destroyed. He promised us that we will not be destroyed. I want us tonight to think about the rock as an acronym. Because I believe there are some foundational things that if we can build our lives upon things that never change. Yes, we get more sophisticated methods, but there are certain things that should never change. There are certain core tenets and beliefs that are foundational. That is, he says, you have to build a life worth building on the rock. So I want to submit to us tonight. I want us to think through online. What would it look like if we chose, first of all, to build our lives on God's righteousness? What would it look like if we made a decision, if we made a conscious, intentional effort to build our lives on his righteousness? What do I mean? Being in right standing with God. What do we know about righteousness? It's a gift, not of our own doing, not of our own power. Righteousness is a gift. If we choose to build our lives on his righteousness alone, and that really has a lot to do with the posture and the position of our hearts, <laughs> building our lives on God's righteousness. I believe God honors that. God honors that the same way that my mama, who might be watching, if you're watching, hey mama. There's nothing that brings a mother or a grandmother any greater joy than seeing her grandbabies in something that she bought. So she'll brag on it. She'll be like, I got that for my grandbabies. That was my gift to them. How much more our Heavenly Father extends this gift of righteousness to us and say it's for you not to put in the back of the closet and never use, but to be in right standing with me, to have access, to have the proper posture to acknowledge him in all things, to have a priority, okay? So righteousness, what would it look like if we built our lives on the righteousness of God? Secondly, what would it look like if we committed to being people who choose to be obedient, my wife teaches first graders, and they often talk about doing it with a joyful heart. Now, there's a huge difference between doing something and doing something with a joyful heart. 
But what would it look like if we choose to be people of obedience who willingly submit to his will because we trust, first of all, that God created us and he has our best interest at heart. So when he gives us instructions and moves us to do something, we don't just get paralyzed in the hearing phase. We don't sit there and try to negotiate, say, well, God, I think there's somebody else better equipped to do what you're asking me to do. God, there's somebody with more resources. There's somebody more influential than me. So choose somebody else. No, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is willingly saying yes to what God is calling us to do. It's believing and acting in accordance with God's will for our lives. To say, God, I trust you because of that trust. I choose to obey you. I choose to obey you. It's not a threat, but I'm going to obey you, God, because I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. I know that you have my best interests at heart. So what would it look like if we choose to build our lives on the rock of the righteousness of God, being in right standing with him, making sure that the posture and the position of our hearts is one of yes and amen and submission to his will? What would it look like if we were submitted to be people of obedience? Not to try to negotiate, not to try to do God like toddlers might do God. Be like, uh, 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 five more minutes. No. Yes, God, I trust you and I'll obey. All right. Thirdly, what would it look like if we commit to building our lives on character? What would it look like to live as people of character, to embody the things that we claim to believe? to be people of integrity, to be people who are on the outside. There's no differentiation between what's on the outside and what's on the inside. What if we're people that live that our word is our bond, that we are trustworthy, okay? That we are people of character, that we are a proper of reflection of God. When people look at us, it's asking like, what do they see? Do they see the character of God? Do they see faithfulness? Do they see goodness? Do they see mercy? Do they see kindness and compassion and grace and forgiveness and self-control and all of these amazing fruit exemplifying the character? We praise God for what he does, but we worship him for who he is, for his character, for his characteristics, for the things that makes him who he is. We want to be people who value character. And then finally, what would it look like if we built our lives not merely on his righteousness or on obedience or a character, but of being kingdom minded, being kingdom minded, thinking of others above ourselves, saying, I'm going to deny what I desire to do in my own strength for my own pleasure, for my own comfort. I'm going to deny that to be able to love and serve somebody well. What would it look like if we showed honor and deference and respect to other people? What would it look like if we lived for the ultimate kingdom instead of working so feverishly to build our own kingdom? Changes the game when you have an eternal perspective. It changes the game when you don't get frustrated when things don't go the way that you want them to go right now. Understanding that God is working out something far more exceeding than you can ask, think, or imagine. It's about building his kingdom. It's about his will coming to the earth. It's about his kingdom coming, all right? So it's not an accident that this is how Jesus chose to end the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember, a lot of times it's the last thing that's most important. And so tonight as we get ready to leave, I just want us to encourage us to be people who do those two things. One, that we would both hear and do. That we would listen well. That we would submit ourselves to say, God, speak for your servant hears. And I'm not just going to hear, but I'm going to do the things that you're asking. And then I want to encourage us to be people who build our lives on that rock the rock of his righteousness and obedience to his will and being people who are committed to being people of character and focusing on his kingdom. One last thing. 
Let's build our lives on what lasts. And it's only the things that we do for Christ at the end of the day that will last anyway. Rulers come and go. Kingdoms fall. People in political office change every few years. But the word of God is true. It's solid. It's foundational. God, I thank you that you are truly worthy of us building our lives upon. God, I thank you that you are the one that brings calm to our anxious hearts, that you're the one that allows us to experience joy in the midst of anxiety. God, I thank you that you're faithful. And God, I just thank you that you're trustworthy. Tonight, Lord, I thank you for reminding us to build our lives on the things that last. Every single one of us, no matter where we are in our journey with you, no matter whatever season we find ourselves in this life, we are building something. And I pray, God, that you would give us a sensitivity to commit ourselves to build something that will outlast us, something of eternal value, something of extreme worth. God, help us to look to your righteousness. Help us to be people of obedience. Help us to commit to living out your character and your nature and help us to be kingdom-minded. God, I pray that you would forgive us for times that you've spoken and we've been disobedient. Forgive us for times that you've given us instructions and we've made a million excuses of why we shouldn't or why we can't. But God, tonight I pray that you have touched all of our hearts and that you would move us with greater urgency, God, to be able to be the people that you've called us to be. Lord, I'm grateful for all that you're doing in us and through us. God, we love you with all of our hearts. We love you with everything that's on the inside of us. God, thanks that you're continuing to help us to grow day by day. Morning by morning, we are grateful for each and every new mercy that you extend to us. I thank you for everybody who's heard this message. I pray for those who will hear it. And I pray that you'll continue to water the seeds that you have sown in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Before we leave tonight, I want to give the opportunity that if there's anyone who desires to put their faith in Jesus for the first time or to recommit their hearts to him, I would like to give you that opportunity to be able to pray for you. If that's you, I encourage you to just raise your hand right where you are. Let me pray for our young friend here. God, thank you so much. I thank you that you see us and that you know us. God, I pray that every single one of us, the youngest to the oldest, especially the youngest in this room right now, I pray that he would not allow anyone to despise his youth. But as you instructed through Timothy, that he would be an example in his words and his conduct and his behavior and his faith and his love and in his purity. God, I pray that he would meet you right where he is. I thank you for his hunger for you. I thank you for his compassion and his acknowledgement for his need for a savior. God, I pray that this is just the start of a journey for him. And I ask that you will continue to be with him every single step of the way. May he have a hunger for your truth. May he have a desire to seek you through prayer and through your word. God, begin, finish everything that you've started in his life, God. We're so, so, so thankful for who you are and who you're helping him to become, forming him more and more in your image. God, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I just want to say thank you all for joining us tonight. I pray that the Lord spoke something to your heart to challenge you, to convict you, to provoke you. And we love you. Have a great evening. God bless you. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was the message titled One Last Thing by Jason Thomas. This message is number 6629. That's 6629. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 6629 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com.
If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to IWantToGive.com. That's IWantToGive.com. Listen to BrothersOfTheWord.com often because, brother, you need the Word. Brothers of the Word.